0: Welcome back, listeners, to the Global Lab. This is episode five, and I'm uh, your one of your hosts, Martin Zoltz Austwick, and I'm your other co-host, Steve Gray. So later uh, this episode, uh, Steve will be talking to our very own Dr. Hannah Fry. Uh, But before that, we've got a roundup of news from the latest conferences and uh, some interesting tech developments in the world, haven't we, Steve? Yes, we
1: do. So what's been happening in the news this week,
0: Martin? So speaking of of access to information, open data and so on, there's a big uh, conference which which is interested in those topics. Uh, that was on in London uh, recently um, called uh, Science Online London. and unfortunately, it's another conference that I wasn't able to go to because <laughs> I was doing proper work. Um, but I was able to listen to some of the talks uh, because I streamed them live, and, and a lot of the topics were to do with um, access to data, open access journals. So there's this is ongoing debate in, in research that what you do with your results when they're when they're published is really important, especially if you're publicly funded. Yeah. Uh, how do you disseminate the results, and and also how do you uh, you know uh, the questions of how you involve the public. Um, in research, in the first place, not only yeah. to credit source data, but also, also actually to crowdsource source analysis. Yeah, um, and uh, so one of the talks I was lucky enough to to hear online um, was a talk by a, a UCL uh, researcher called uh, Bo Lotto. So he got together with a class of primary school children, uh, all eight to ten years old, and they did together. They designed an experiment on bumblebees, and uh, it was an experiment to sort of. Understand how bees choose the flowers they forage from, uh, whether it's colour or shape or whether it's a combination of the two.
1: See, actually, cool because so I presume the class have used it as kind of a part of their school coursework, but also to kind of further the you know he's actually also furthering scientific
0: research. So it's kind of bringing the two the two kind of academic outputs together. Absolutely, I mean, and it's genuine research, and this is a fascinating thing. I mean, they they, they did this this work. Uh, The children wrote up the paper. Oh, wow, that's really cool. So it's it's the only academic paper uh, Uh, to start with the phrase, once upon a time. (laughs) uh, That may not be true, but I suspect it is. Um, It's certainly the youngest group of people to to publish uh, a paper. Um, It took them about five months to do the research and write the paper, but it took them almost two years to find a place to publish it. Really? Yeah, they went through a series of different journals who generally said, you know, this is great work, but... You know it's not really appropriate for the journal
1: yeah you'd think though these journals would jump at a chance because i mean this sounds such a a really good project to do because obviously it's bringing these e- young new scientists yeah. who are one you know who hopefully one day might actually become researchers at universities or researchers in other fields you'd think one of the biggest priorities would be to kind of enthuse you Young scientists to actually come up the ranks up through high school, go to university, and maybe become researchers themselves yeah and
0: i mean and to broaden that out, i mean they don 't have to become researchers and for you know for eight to ten year olds this could have been a group of sixteen year olds i mean this could have been a group of adults for that matter yeah so i um, I hope that this amount of media attention and, and what a lovely heartwarming story this is will um, make it a bit easier for citizen scientists and potentially Pupil scientists, if they're you know eight to, ten, eight to ten years old, yeah, to to get involved and do projects like this a bit more in the future. So one of the big cases in patent law going on at the moment is uh, Apple suing Samsung in Europe over a tablet computer. That's right, isn't it? Yeah. Have I got that right. Yeah,
1: not but not only just in Europe and Australia as well now.
0: Right. So what's the story behind that? I mean, surely a tablet computer—that's a generic concept, right? It's—it's a—it's a—it's a, it's a computer. It just has a screen. You press buttons. You press the screen rather than having buttons. You know, that's—that's yeah. that's every tablet,
1: right? So, yeah. so Samsung have brought out a product which is a ten-inch tablet, okay. which runs Google's Android operating system. Okay. Now, Apple are saying that. So yeah, before the iPad came along, you had tablet computing was very much like mini laptops with that had full quality keyboards on it, oh, that okay. had pen devices that you draw. They had another physical attachment on it that yeah. you used to draw, So, you,
0: like a stylus. For so so Apple are arguing that the iPad simplified and made the design more elegant and now everyone's ripping them off is yeah, like the argument yeah, basically.
1: Yeah, pretty much. So this is what Apple is saying. They're trying to protect their patents. What's interesting is... In, Samsung, in the court case in Germany, Samsung cited that the tab, the idea of a tablet computer was penned way, way back when Arthur C.
0: Clarke wrote oh. uh, t- 2001 uh, A Space Odyssey. Well, I think any child in the 1980s would have said, oh, I want a computer, and you touch your fingers on it, and things happen. I mean, yeah. that's that's, that's uh, every every geeky child's science fiction dream. Yeah.
1: But th- th- this is the point. This is how most patent laws are... Or exercise. Someone comes up with an idea and they patent the idea and then they can hold on to that patent for as long as they, they keep paying the fees for the patent and if someone else comes along and builds it they can potentially sue that person for a, a breach of their patent. Yeah. And this is what's been happening. So what we have is we're in this big loop where companies are buying these patents up and they're fighting these court cases where people are suing each other rather than innovating.
0: So recently we had the uh, Royal Geographic Society conference and uh, I didn't go to that, uh, but uh, there are plenty of people from CASA who did, um, not least amongst them uh, James Cheshire. Who adds had on last episode. Uh, and uh, Fabian Neuhaus, who's, who's a chap, who's done a lot of work on, uh, on uh, with yourself on Twitter yeah, maps. Yeah. Um no, I'm. I'm. I'm a physicist. I think I might have said this before, and I found it absolutely fascinating, picking through the the sort of uh, the timetable for this conference, seeing some of the topics that geography now covers. I don't know what your impression of geography was coming from a computer science background. Stuff. Oh
1: yeah, when I, I mean I, my geography background was um, my standard grades in Scotland, which that, is the equivalent of GCSEs. That's like GCSE in yeah. English. <laughs> yeah, and from what I remember, now this was many years ago, it was uh, a lot of colouring pencils, uh, colouring in maps, or making your own maps from colours, and uh, out sitting in the street counting cars in my local well, area. So th- I mean, that was my impression of geography before I started the CASA. I mean, in some sense, there was a split
0: in, there in geography, and then this is what I found out since working with geographers. They're the, the, the sort of physical geographers uh, who look at how tall you know, hills are, and how wide a river is. Yeah. And they've got human geographers. Now, when I was at uh, a, a school, a human geographer was someone that, you know, looked at migration to cities for work, you know, sort of economic migration and, and, and you know, um, development of, of, of developing countries to some extent. But uh, looking at this this programme from the RGS conference, it's re- it seems to have really broadened out into areas I had no idea that geographers were interested in. Really? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, just to pick an example here... Um, there's a whole session on um, feminist geography, so that's something I didn't know existed. I didn't know geography had these different schools. For example, this feminist geography session has a, a talk about um, using space to feel safe for victims of domestic abuse. That's quite a serious thing yeah well it's very serious but It's potentially quite useful you know to understand how you know how, how people get where people go to feel safe and how they can protect themselves that's, yeah. and that's not an application of geography. No, no. Well, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's it's kind of like it's like pulling these different areas of social humanities together and applying it to geography. So it's really actually very interesting.
0: There's not even I don't think particularly unusual. I think there's a very, you know, sensible application. Some of these some of these areas of geography I'd never heard of. There's a whole series of uh, of sessions called resuscitating necrogeography. What what? <laughs> yeah, I'm not well I'm not sure, I mean I'm not a necrogeographer but I assume it's it's the geography of of, of dead things, or death Yeah, well, I ho- I'd hope <laughs> I, I don't know whether this started when someone thought to map out the cemeteries in their town.
1: What's well, really interesting actually, you should say that, but I'm sure an open street map, which was mentioned before in our previous episode, actually has the location, I think, of Jeremy Beadle's grave Really? In one of the uh, cemeteries in London, I'm, I'm Pretty sure about that. Wow, that's lots
0: of so people can visit and pay their tributes. <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> um, this is, but this is fascinating. The, 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 I mean, one of the talk titles I I, um, I, I saw was um, a researcher from Sh- University of Sheffield who was talking about a haunted skyscraper in Taipei City.
1: I wonder if what Richard Dawkins would have to say about that. Would actually be. <laughs> he'd be very pleased?
0: But I mean, the, you know, just look at this. There's there's, there's a there's a, a talk about using comedy as a as a ...tool of political unrest here. There's a whole series of those. That's
1: really interesting. So, so hopefully someone listening will be maybe part of this, uh, these kind of different branches of geography who might want to come on and actually talk yeah. about this, their, their research and kind of explain more of this stuff to us because we're, we're just discovering this from, like, one conference. So if you're out there and you really want to talk about this stuff, get
0: in touch with us. Yeah, please do. In fact, if you're a necrogeographer especially, get in contact Yeah, we'll put you high up on the list. (laughs) And so our guest this week is one of CASA's resident mathematicians, Dr. Hannah Fry. So today in the Global Lab, we have the
1: privilege of welcoming Dr. Hannah Fry from our very own CASA uh, here to chat about the research and the kind of things she's doing here at CASA. So, hi Hannah, how
2: are you? Very good, thank you. How are you?
1: I'm not too bad today. So... Tell us a bit about the research that you do. Uh,
2: so I've been working at CASA for the past year um, on a project called Enfold, which stands for Explaining Modeling and Forecasting Global Dynamics. Now
1: that really sounds really complicated. It Can it you does. simplify that out? It first? Does, of
2: course. So um, the idea behind it is that uh, we're focusing on four big global questions. So uh, trying to model trade, migration, international aid and development, and Uh, conflict and security
1: so really you're trying to protect how everybody in the world kind of interacts with each other in these four main areas yeah
2: exactly so traditionally the research in these areas has treated them kind of in isolation Um, but by doing that i mean intuitively you know that all four of them um interact with one another so people tend to migrate to areas which uh have a strong economy or or strong trade links that's where the money is exactly (laughs) Um, equally, um, conflict can often arise over territories with high-value natural resources like oil or minerals, okay. um, and then that causes the need for, uh, you know, aid, and also can cause, um, you know, refugees leaving the area.
1: Okay, so unfolding kind of brings all this together. Exactly. And...
2: So you know these things intuitively interact with one another. By ignoring the kind of couplings between them, you can get unexpected dynamics, which limits the extent um, to which these models can be applied to the real world. So by models, what do you mean by that? well there's lots of different ways that you can do modeling so you can start off with lots of data and analyze it statistically look for trends and patterns that appear Mm -hmm. or there's mathematical modeling which is where you make an educated guess say about the structure of how things interact with each other using known mathematical functions
1: okay so you're kind of predicting what can happen in the future
2: in some ways yeah but it doesn't just have to be in the future. You can be, you can use a mathematical model to explain what's going on now. So you're looking to uh, recreate the relationship that things have with one another using existing functions and formulas mathematically.
1: So how does all this kind of combine into unfold? In
2: so there's five key work streams: one on trade security. Um, one on migration and one on um, aid and development and then there's the fifth one which is the one that I work on um, which is tools for complexity science
1: Sounds very complex (laughs)
2: Um, The idea behind that is to analyse existing mathematical models to get a better understanding of how they work um, the stability of them under certain conditions to find any tipping points or catastrophes that could occur within the equations because it's all in the equations already Yeah and then also to develop new models and new techniques. So it's quite interesting
1: because you kind of apply maths to kind of real world situations. When I was back at school, you know, I always saw maths being repetitive sums, and <laughs> it wasn't until I came down to do computing science that I realised that maths was, you know, calculus was all about how the real world. But this sounds like really far out from any of that. Mm.
2: Well, so I think um, maths underpins the vast majority of science which looks at the real world. Um, You can't really have anything without maths. If you ask any mathematician, they'll agree. Um, But there are some more theoretical things, like dynamical systems, which in the past have been studied in a mathematical context without application to the real world. And in the past few years, with the emergence of complexity theory, people have started applying these techniques to social situations, to um, you know, any type of complex system, to networks, all this sort of thing. Um, and it's a new new field that's coming through. So
1: how does Infold affect us all as a global population?
2: So the idea is that if you can get a global system with all of these mechanisms that interact with one another and a good understanding of how they interact, then you have a better understanding of what's affecting what when a catastrophe happens, like the earthquake in Japan or the stock market crash of 2008.
1: So essentially you can take these big events and try and prevent them happening in the future?
2: Potentially, yeah. But at the very least, we can try and understand the causality of different things in the chain of reaction.
1: With these major events, what can projects like unfolding and these mathematical models tell us?
2: So if you can formulate a mathematical description of these mechanisms and how they interact with one another then within those equations will be information about the stability of the systems so for example with the stock market sometimes the FTSE can take a big hit in one day and the next day can recover but at other times it takes a big hit and then the next day it will go down even lower and then lower and lower and lower and i will snowball into this big, big event
1: presumably because investors are Getting a bit worried about how the market is yeah, going to be. Of course, of for, course, for, all, for all sorts
2: of reasons that can happen. But it's an example of a system that's stable when it can take a hit and then bounce back. Yeah. And an example of an unstable system where if you kick it a little bit, it'll snowball off of its original position. And all of this information about where things are stable, where things are unstable, where a small change will end up being a big change. Um, are all hidden in the functions and equations that describe things mathematically and they're there for us to find if only we can analyse them.
1: Is there any other major events that you've looked at and unfold to apply some of these techniques?
2: Uh, Yeah, absolutely. So, um, Although we are interested in in global systems and the interaction of those, we're also interested in uh, events that happen within cities because then they can sometimes be scaled up or applied to other places across the globe. So one of the things that um, I've been looking at In the last month is a mathematical model of the London riots. So the obvious questions that arise about the London riots are why did it happen, why do people decide to riot and what could the police have done better?
1: So you're using these models to understand how people interact in these kind of riots?
2: Exactly and how people who weren't rioting decide to riot. Okay. So one of the um, traditional ways to look at these things is to suppose that the decision of an individual um, about whether to riot or not comes down to them weighing up the possible outcomes in what's called a utility function. So so what is a utility function? So let's say each person looks at, say, um, the value of items that they could loot, um, their chances of getting caught and what the cost, so to speak, is of getting arrested. They're also persuaded by other people who are rioting around them and put off by police who are close by. But we also assume that rioters don't really want to go too far away from where they live. So this notion of close by um, is a function of distance. And if you put all of this data into the model and using it, you can replicate the results of what actually happened, then you can filter out what's actually important and what's the causes of these uh, people choosing to riot.
1: So, I assume it's really early days because the London riots were only like a month ago from just now. Yeah. Where, where can this take us? Where will it, can this lead to?
2: So, um, once we've managed to replicate um, the results of what actually happened using our existing mathematical model which we've constructed and the codes that we've written. Um, then the idea is that we can start moving police around into different configurations and to see if there's anything strategic that the police could have done with their limited resources that could have uh, prevented um, things getting as bad as they did, perhaps.
1: So if anyone listening wants to find out more about what you and the Enfold team are up to, where can they go and find out?
2: Uh, Well, the best place to look is our website, which is enfolding.net. Or they can follow me on Twitter, which is at squared.
1: A lovely little pun there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's some really, really interesting themes and research going on there. So I look forward to seeing the kind of more of the visual outputs and stuff you're talking you know, the maps that you're talking about. So uh, all left to be said is thanks for your time. Honey. Thank you.
0: So that brings us to the end of episode five of the Global Lab. This show is.
1: All for you guys out there, we would really like you all to get in touch with us and you can get in touch via our website, thegloballab.com. You can message us on Twitter,
0: at thegloballab, or you can use old fashioned email, thegloballab at gmail.com. So until next time, goodbye. Bye bye.